Good morning and welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville. And if you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Should be a card underneath the seat in front of you. It's called a connection card. You can fill it out and give us a little information about you and also a place for you to write down a prayer request or I want to get to know um, some of the ministries here. And then you can drop it in the box in the back, which is also where we take our offerings as well. All right, so we, uh, we've got college lunch after this. So if you are a college student-ish in that range, then you're welcome to come join us for lunch, which happens right after this over in the gym or the fellowship hall. It includes uh, college age, in your 20s, and um, married or single, doesn't matter. We'd love to have you get to know you. Okay, so John chapter one. If you would turn to John chapter one, we're going to read um, 1 through 3, and then we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 and read verse 6. So we're going to tackle those four, four verses in reading here. So this book, uh, CF, started in John. And uh, the first chapter of John is one of the most amazing chapters in Scripture. And you've got to know that when John was writing this, it's one of those moments where you're kind of shaking and your palm is sweating and you're excited and you just get it. All of a sudden things just click. And that's what this chapter is. And it, I, I wish we had a video of John writing it. Because you know it's got to be amazing. When the Holy Spirit moves through you like this and this is what you produce coming out of the tip of your pen. All right, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. If you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 9. No, it is not Christmas. We just celebrated... Uh, Valentine's Day. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. Your mightiness, your vastness, the things that uh, even we don't understand. Pray, Lord, that the context that we are supposed to grasp, that we'll be able to do that through the reading of your word, listening to it, your Holy Spirit speaking through us and to us. Lord, I pray that you will speak through CF this morning, that your word will be made known and that uh, we will be able to go forth and declare it. And we just say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to have you here with us. We're studying the Gospel of John, and we're on this first verse, which is a very significant verse. It sets the stage for the whole book, because what John is going to do in this book, he's going to show the, the, that Christ is God, and he establishes that from the very outset of the book. And we looked last week at the preexistence of Christ, so this week and next week and following, we're going to look at the deity of Christ. Look at how he, 
uh, shows himself to be God and what's the importance of that. So let's pray and then we'll take a look at our passage. Father, we come before you thanking you, Lord, for this day and for this opportunity to study your word together and to worship. Just pray for your divine direction and guidance in all that we do and that you would direct me as I teach, help me to rightly divide your word of truth, to explain it clearly and accurately, and that you and your people would receive it, uh, that we would be obedient in what we do and how we apply it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And John is writing this to an audience that has, for the most part, the people that he was writing it to, for the most part, they understand who God is. What he's showing them is that Jesus is the very God that you worship and followed in the Old Testament. And so we talk about deity, or I use that statement a lot. I didn't put the definition up there, but I'm going to define the word for you. What do I mean when I say deity? Well, deity from Webster's Dictionary defines it as this. It says the, a being that's, that possesses the rank or essential nature of a god or a goddess. Second definition is a god. Third definition they offer is that one that is exalted to possess divinity. And then the fourth is a supreme being or one that is revealed to have all power. Okay? So when I say deity, all I'm saying is that Jesus is God, okay? That's, what, that's who he is. He is God. And that's what this passage deals with. And that's a very important thing. I think most people in here understand that. But the vast majority of people in the world don't. The vast majority of the people in the world, especially in other religions, view Jesus as just another great prophet. For example, the Muslims speak about him and their, and their holy writings, but they refer to him as a prophet, okay? Uh, many people put him on the same level as Buddha or Krishna or other religious leaders that have existed at one time or another and said he's just another person that's explaining the way to God. Jehovah's Witnesses say that he is not equal with the Father. But what you've got to research is you've got to understand and research what, does, what information is given to us. We refer to the Bible as God's revelation to man, and that's what it is. The Bible is God revealing himself to mankind. Man cannot understand God in and of himself because man is a fallen creature. When Adam sinned in the garden... That sin has been passed on to every person that has ever come to live on the earth is born of human parents. And with that comes the inability to fully understand who God is. And most people try to understand God through subjective understanding. There are two basic ways that, 
that you can that you can talk about God. You can talk from a subjective viewpoint or you can speak from an objective viewpoint. A subjective viewpoint is a viewpoint built upon the subject or the individual. It is simply you defining who God is. An objective viewpoint is from an object outside of yourself. Okay, an external uh, source of information. From a subjective viewpoint, people try to come up with ideas about God and they almost always relate God to some type of a man-type creature. And you will many times hear people say, well, I don't believe God is like that. I don't think God would do something like that. And they'll say that many times, even when you show them in Scripture what God has said. They just say, I don't believe that God is like that. So what they are doing is they're allowing their subjective understanding of God to overrule an objective source authority. Our source authority is the Word of God. And the Word of God instructs us that, that, that God's Word is God-breathed, that God gave this revelation to us. And, and the Word of God, the Bible, is objective revelation. Now, God is revealed in other means of objective revelation. For example, in Romans 1, God says, the heavens uh, speak to who God is. Turn to, turn, turn to Romans 1.18. I'll let you look at that verse of Scripture. And God says in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans, He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so they are without excuse. What God is saying there is that the heavens reveal that God exists, okay? It reveals that God is powerful. Because according to that passage, the only two things you can know is that God exists and that He is powerful. That's what you can know. You can, real, you can understand that there is a Godhead and that He is powerful. When you look at the creation, it will strike you with that point of view or with that understanding, okay? That's objective revelation. But you go inside of objective revelation and you get to what is called special revelation, all right? Now, I was explaining to a person this week whom I don't even know, uh, never met this person, but they got my information somehow and they are texting me on the phone about God and I, I said, well, God reveals himself more specifically as Jesus Christ through special revelation. And their response was, you're going to read the whole Bible and you won't find anywhere where it says special revelation. And I said, you're right. You won't. Special revelation is a theological term that summarizes or pulls together a truth of Scripture. And I told them, I said, well, you can search the whole Bible from front to back, and you won't find the word Trinity either. Yet Trinity is a word, a theological term, that is used to explain the Godhead. And I said special revelation is much the same. Special revelation is where God specifically reveals 
the person of Jesus Christ, okay? That's special revelation. Special revelation is where God reveals all of his attributes and how he deals with man. General revelation is the creation. You can look at the creation and you can know two things, that God exists and that he's powerful. Special revelation, such as the word of God, tells you details about God, okay? And in special revelation, God reveals himself to mankind and explains exactly what he expects out of mankind. He makes it very clear. And so as John writes this book here, he's writing it on the, on the shoulders, if you would, of many, many years of writings that have been accumulated. And he's just drilling down, going into more detail. And he's going to talk about the deity of Christ. So we're going to take a look this morning at Isaiah chapter 9. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9, this is an Old Testament passage written by the prophet Isaiah. Now Isaiah is referred to as a major prophet. And what that means by major prophet, it means that his writings take up a large portion of scripture. There were several major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Uh, these guys wrote and their writings took up a good chunk of scripture. So they're therefore referred to as major prophets. It's not that they're more important or that their word is more valid than those that are called minor prophets. The minor prophets are referred to as minor prophets because they had a smaller portion of scripture. And that's just an easy way to define or differentiate between the two groups, major prophet, minor prophet. It only has to do with the volume in which they wrote. Isaiah is a prophet of God and he wrote this prophecy uh, to the children of Israel a hundred years before they went into captivity and 600 years before Jesus Christ came to the earth. And we looked last week, or I mentioned last week, that the United States of America has been in existence almost 250 years. And that's a long time. I mean, when you think back to the 1700s, we think ancient history. The prophet Isaiah wrote something 600 years before Christ came. That is a long time. And we don't often go to this passage of Scripture, as, uh, as David said, until usually around Christmas time. It's kind of like a Christmas ornament. We drag it out at Christmas and put it up for the rest of the year and don't really deal with it. Well, we're going to drag it out this morning we're going to deal with it because it's special revelation. It speaks to the deity of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah wrote this word to those people. Look at your passage in the sixth verse. It says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now, who is the us in here? The us is, in a broad sense, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. In a specific sense, it is the believers. It is the remnant within that, really, is what he's writing to, because all scripture is written for believers. So it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be, <coughs> excuse me, 
upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Excuse me a second. And so Isaiah gives this prophecy to tell us who this coming Messiah is going to be. Now, he begins here with two things that speak to the dual nature of Christ. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. When he references the child being born, he's referencing the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because the child is going to be born. When he says a son is given, that is a direct reference to the deity of Christ. Okay? In essence, what he is saying is the son already existed and he is given. Not one and the same. And as you go through, you'll see this more and more in scripture. He's talking about the dual nature of Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Jesus Christ is 100% man. He's not, and he's 100% God. He's not 50% man, 50% God. He is two distinct and separate natures brought together in one being. He is unique. He's a one of a kind. He is a God man. 100% man without sin. He's also 100% God and undiminished deity. And God brings those two together, okay? So when he says a child is born, he speaks of the humanity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and Christ coming into the world in his human state, but the Son is given because the Son is preexistent. In the humanity of Christ, Christ lived his life here on earth as a Jewish male, and he lived his life under the Jewish law. The Bible is very clear when it comes to the law of God. The law of God is the standard by which God expresses or reveals his holy character to mankind. We often refer to the law of God as the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are really a summary of the entirety of the law. Because the law possessed 613 commandments. And the scripture also reveals this, because when we hear people talk about the law, people will say, well, when it talks about a relationship with God, well, I've been a pretty good old boy. Uh, I've never committed murder. I've never committed adultery. And they'll usually throw one of the other Ten Commandments in there, what we call the biggies. They'll throw them in there. And the uh, reality is that by that very statement, you have just committed an act of sin in the fact that you have lied because you have committed, you have broken that. Because the Bible reveals several things. Number one, breaking the law doesn't just have to do with what you do. Breaking the law also has to do with what you say. And breaking the law also has to do with what you think. Jesus said, you can see a woman in lust over that woman and you've committed adultery. You can want to kill someone and you've committed murder. So when we talk about the law and we talk about Jesus coming in here and living under the law, what we're saying in essence is this. Jesus kept 
every one of those commandments. Because, see, the law also works like this. The second half is this. The Bible tells us that if you violate one law, you're guilty of violating the whole law. You can't take the law of God and pull certain parts out of it and say, well, I've done this, this, and this. Maybe God will give me partial credit. No, it's complete because the law works as a unity. So if you violate one law and there's three ways to violate it, words, thoughts, or deeds, then you have violated the whole law. So if there's 613 commandments, multiply that times three, and that's how many opportunities you have to make one mistake in your life. The odds are not real good. They're not good at all. But understand this, when Jesus lived here on earth, he kept all 613, all three ways. He did not violate a single one. So what did he do? He fulfilled, as scripture says, all righteousness. Not one jot or tittle was left undone until all was fulfilled. He did it all. And he went to the cross as a perfect human sin bearer on our behalf, perfectly righteous, and was crucified and suffered our penalty for violating the law was placed upon him. Scripture says, and the iniquity of us all was placed upon him. So he bore our sin. So as a Jewish male, he had to do that. Another reason he had to come as a male or as a human is that he had to die on a cross. You can't nail a spirit to the cross because God is spirit. So he had to take on a human body to die for mankind. He had to take on a human body to identify with mankind. He had to take on a human body to be a sacrifice equal to mankind. There's a lot of reasons for the incarnation. And the Bible is very clear on that. Well, look at Hebrews chapter 4. Turn to Hebrews 4.15. And we're going to see his role as high priest, what he says there. Jesus has ascended into the heavens and he serves as our high priest now. Verse 14, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4.14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. In other words, he was tested in every area that a person could be tested. And what does it say? He was yet without sin. So he is a sinless human being. So when we look at our passage in Isaiah, and Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born, then the second statement he makes is, unto us a son is given. The son being given implies deity in that he existed before his birth. We saw that last week with his preexistence, okay? Turn to John 16, 28 in your Bible. John 16, 28, Jesus makes this statement when he's speaking uh, to the people. John 16, 28, he says, I can't, I'll give you time to get there. I know right where it is, man. I got there for you. I got a little thing hanging out here. I know. All right. He says, I came forth from the Father. 
What does that tell you? He, he was with the father. He existed before his birth. He was with him. So his existence didn't begin in Bethlehem. The Bible says his existence has been from all eternity. All Bethlehem was, was the incarnation where, where he became a child and he was born. Okay. He said, I came forth from the father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. He returns to where he came from. Except when he returned, he returned in a glorified body. Okay? So the scripture is very clear. Look at Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. And look at verse 6. Philippians 2.6. Philippians 2.6 says, uh, I'm going to go to... Uh, 2.5, go to 2.5, just back up one. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man. Let's deal with that first of all. What does that mean, the likeness of man? He came in the likeness of man in this sense. He was fully human without sin. That's how he differed from you and me, okay? He had a human body, but he did not have sin. So he did not have the same uh, internal characteristics that we had. But you look at verse 6, and it says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Form is the word morphe, and it means to be an exact physical rep representation or reality of an unseen thing, okay? When we say Jesus is the morphe of God, what we're saying is he is the visible reality of the invisible God. He is the clear picture of who God is. Folks, that speaks very clearly to him having deity, that he is God. When you start hearing stuff about I came forth from God, a son is given, these kind of things, all these things are saying is that he is pre-existent with God. But our passage in Isaiah goes on. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then the third part of that verse says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The government will rest upon him. That speaks of him as Lord, meaning the government rests upon him. He is the ultimate authority. He is the all in all. He stands supreme. He is Lord and he is absolute in authority. There's other places of scripture that says that the nations are but a drop in a bucket to God. They're meaningless to God. The government can strike fear into a lot of people. We saw that during the COVID thing. People terrified because the government said, be scared, be very scared about what's going on here. Uh, but God is over government, folks. God is the absolute authority. And when it comes to the believer's life, the believer's responsibility is to obey God and to follow God. Why? Because every government in the world is subject to him. They are but a drop in the bucket to him. They are of no significance to God. 
But man puts them in places of significance and are fearful of them. But folks, understand this. If the government rests on his shoulders, then how much more fear should we have for God? The government shall rest on his shoulders. And he's ultimately going to rule the whole creation, though that has not been realized yet. Then you move to the next part. And it says, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, in your Bible, a lot of Bible translations, it has wonderful, comma, counselor, comma. Really, wonderful counselor goes together, okay? How is he a wonderful counselor? Well, speaking back to governments, when someone comes into power, what they do is they put people around them as advisors. And they pick or they seek to pick, well, they're supposed to pick the smartest people around them to put in those positions, okay? Now, in modern government, a lot of what they do is they just pick their buddies or they get some of these government retreads that have been up there for 40 years or more and just reuse them over and over. Why? Because everyone accepts them and says they are a wise person. Well, when I look at the state of the government that we have, I start saying someone's made some bad decisions along the way here. And this stuff is kind of compounded and stuff. But a wise leader will put wise people around them. Okay? And why do they put those people around them? Because they don't have expertise in every area of life. Especially in the in area of foreign affairs and health. Because these people are elected officials to represent the people. And I'm speaking from an American government. And to represent the people and their areas of life that they need someone to give them guidance in. But when the Bible says that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, what that means, folks, is there's nobody gives him advice. He is the counselor. He is the supreme source of knowledge is who he is. Look at John chapter 7 in your Bible and look at verse 45, John 7, 45. This is an incident where Jesus is speaking to the, speaking to the people and they're, they're trying to make up their mind about what to do with him in, in this passage of scripture. Let me make sure, make sure I get there. Uh, go to John 7, 45. John 7, 45. It says, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officer said, no man ever spoke like this man. In other words, they heard Jesus speak and they said, this guy is not an ordinary person. He's got some superior knowledge. And then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Yeah, I think two of them did. Joseph of Arimathea, even though it was late, towards the crucifixion of Christ, and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But Nicodemus is an undercover Christian. He doesn't really reveal his game until right there at the end, kind of like Joseph of Arimathea. He didn't want to get the persecution or pressure of the Pharisees, so you don't see a lot with him. But look, But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. 
Nicodemus, this is one of the believers, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? What that means, are you an uneducated hillbilly? Are you stupid? That's what he's saying, really, in essence there. Because no educated people came out of Galilee. It was a rural country area. Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own home. But see, that, 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 that leader that came and spoke to those Pharisees, he said, there's never been a person talk like this man. This man spoke on a completely different level than these others. Look at John 14, 6, if you want to see a counselor that needs no guidance. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a clear statement that I don't need any guidance. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. That is a bold counselor. Look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah speaks of this. Yet again, 600 years before Christ came. But this is what it says about Messiah and his ability to counsel others. Look at Isaiah 40 and look at uh, verse 12. Isaiah 40 and 12. Who has measured, uh, speaking of him, it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him? It's a rhetorical question, nobody. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as small dust on the balance. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. You don't counsel this individual. This individual is the wonderful counselor. That speaks to his vast knowledge and understanding. In essence, when it talks about him being the only counselor, the wonderful majestic counselor, you know what it's saying? He's omniscient. He knows all. And that is the divine attribute that is not possessed by man. He is the all-knowing God, the wonderful counselor. And then, if there's any doubt in your mind, the next part of Isaiah 9 and 6 says, not only is he wonderful counselor, he's mighty God. Boom, drop the mic, close the book, it's over with. He's mighty God. That's as clear as you can see because he's saying, this one that comes is going to be God. He's mighty God. He's mighty God and he's going to reveal himself. When, when Jesus came to the earth and we read about in John I told you John is centered around seven I am passages. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus 
constantly use the name of God for himself because I am is the name that God revealed to Moses from the burning bush. Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. And he said, go tell him I am sent you. And so when Jesus says I am in scripture, he's referring to himself as God. He's using the title of deity. In essence, he's saying, I am mighty God. But it goes on and it tells us he's also everlasting father. What does this mean? It means that he is the father of all eternity. He is the father of all. Creation was set in place by him because he existed prior to it. And that's what verses 2 and 3 of John 1 says. He created the whole world that we live in. He is the active agent of creation and brought it into existence. Look at the testimony of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 1 in reference to the Son. Flip in your Bibles there to Hebrews 1 and look at chapter 1 of Hebrews beginning in verse 8. I, I like... Well, I like the whole book of Hebrews, but I, I, I like verse 6, and I want to begin there. Back is up to 6. It says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Boom, right there, folks. That's a direct reference to what? Deity. The holy angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne. This is from the this is the father speaking to the son. He says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your direct reference to the son being God. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. And they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. Folks, that is as clear of statements to the deity of Jesus Christ as you could possibly get. But and yet he says one other thing in Isaiah 9, 6. He says not only is he everlasting father, he's prince of peace. He is the prince of peace. Because he is the only one that can bring peace. Now, he's ultimately and finally going to bring peace to the, to the earth. But how does he bring peace now? How does the person of Jesus Christ fulfill the position as Prince of Peace? Turn, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans, the first chapter. Romans chapter 1, as Paul pens this letter to the church at Rome... He says in Romans 1, 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, 
called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Note, note that. With Jesus, you have peace that is sent from God. Amen. Look at Romans 5. Romans 5 and 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have peace from God. And because of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. And then if you'll look at the book of Philippians chapter 4, he also brings you the peace of God. Romans chapter 4 and verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He is the peace of God. So he is peace from God. He is peace with God. And he is the peace of God. Why? Because he is the Prince of Peace. All these passages in book of John is going to point to the fact that Jesus is God. The Old Testament tells us that this Messiah that's going to be the Word and the Word's going to become flesh and the Word's going to dwell among you, that Word is God. Jesus Christ is God. That's the significance of His deity. He is fully God. He is the revelation of God to man. He reveals to us fully what God is like, who God is, how God deals with man. He reveals all that. Jesus himself told those people around him. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1.18 says, it is the Son who declares the Father. He explains the Father to us. How does he explain the Father? He explains the Father by what he does. Well, how can he do that? Because he proceeded forth from God. For unto us a child is born, but a son is given. And he's going to be known as a mighty God. The government's going to rest on his shoulder. He is the chief counselor of all counselors, and he needs no advice from anybody. He is the prince of peace. He is everlasting and overall. He is a wonderful savior. That's who Jesus is. He is God, fully God, incarnated in a human body to live among man. He possesses full deity. And we're going to look for the next several weeks. How is the deity of Christ revealed? Well, we look today and it's revealed through the Old Testament prophecy of him. But we're going to look at it now and how is it revealed in his day to day life? Because, folks, when we worship in here, if you worship the Lord Jesus Christ, you're worshiping God. Amen. Jesus is God come in the flesh, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it goes on to tell us that the word became flesh in John 1.14. And he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father. 
Father, we thank you for a blessed salvation, for the blessed hope, for the blessed promises of God that you give us through the person of Jesus Christ. And we lift his name up this morning and we worship him and look to him for he alone is worthy. Father, help us to live our life to bring glory to him and honor to him as those that have been born into his family, as representatives, as ambassadors for Christ. Let us live that out before those we're around. Let us bring him glory, for he is worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.